and welcome to episode 60 of On Liberty. I'm Monica Wilkie, a policy analyst at the Centre for Independent Studies. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by a Bitcoin maximalist and podcast host of the incredibly popular Stefan Lovera podcast. You'll never guess who it is. It's Stefan Lovera. Stefan, hello. Hello, everyone. Thanks for inviting me on the show, Monica. It's a pleasure to join you and to uh, uh, chat with the CIS audience. Thank you, Stefan. Well, we'll get uh, we'll get straight into it. Bitcoin has uh, been through quite a ride this year. We had all-time high prices at the beginning of the year, then a bit of confusion around Elon Musk talking about, you know, you can buy Teslas with Bitcoin, you can't because of the environmental impacts. And then El Salvador turned around and made Bitcoin legal tender. So what do you think is the future? Is it is it all over? Is the Elon Musk position about the environmental impact right? Or are we all going to move in the direction of El Salvador? Where's it going? So I think the world is slowly moving towards and adopting this new form of money, but it doesn't happen evenly and it doesn't happen smoothly. It's not just like this kind of steady, we all just in an orderly fashion move to the lifeboats. No, no, no. And so to understand Bitcoin, you have to understand the fundamental issues with the fiat money system. And so what happens is not everybody cottons onto that and wakes up to that at the same time and in an orderly way. What really happens is it's more like it moves in these big waves up and then down. And then you wait a few more years and rinse and repeat. And so that's why in the news, it comes out all the time. They say, oh, Bitcoin is dead. It's gone down 50% from the high, 80% from the high, multiple times, 80% drops. But the, but the reality is it moves more in like a, like a dance. It's like a two steps forward, one step back dance. And so there might be some positive news and then a setback and then some positive news and then a setback. And then it just, it just sort of moves in that way. But in terms of global adoption, let me frame it that way. So the world population is around 7.9 billion. The estimates right now are something like 150 to 200 million people who hold some, some amount of Bitcoin and the, that number in terms of who holds a serious amount of Bitcoin, probably less than 10 million. So we are at a very tiny percentage globally for adoption of Bitcoin, if I were to just frame it in those terms. Just a, a reminder to everyone as well that you can ask Stefan a question if you just uh, pop over into the YouTube chat and we'll get to those a little bit later. So I think it's a very helpful the way Stefan that you you phrase it how it's not just going to be this continuous you know up and up and up in terms of Bitcoin adoption and then we're all going to adopt it. I think I'd like to just step half a step back for a minute and just get your perspective on why do you think Bitcoin is the future of money? So let's put it this way. I see it like money arises on the market. It's a bottom-up phenomenon. We, we use money and we choose it because it's a medium of exchange. It is the indirect exchange, meaning it helps us get away from barter because barter means I have to want the exact same thing you want and you have to want the thing I want. And we need this double coincidence of wants. So money helps us get around that issue. That's money in general. Now, our explanation, the way we would view fiat money, the US dollar, Australian dollar, et cetera, is these are mandated by the government. But Bitcoin is different. It combines the best of both worlds. It, it, in some sense, let's put it this way. Gold historically held value over time. But fiat money could transport value through space. 
Bitcoin does the best of both worlds because Bitcoin can store your value over time because we know it's a, it's a scarce limit of 21 million and you can ship it anywhere around the world at a fraction of the cost. And what we're talking about here is final settlement. We're not just talking about day-to-day -day transactions. We're really thinking of it like banks transacting between each other or high value transactions being performed. That's really what it is for. And so let me put it this way. Bitcoin can provide assurances to us in terms of scarcity, not being confiscated remotely, not being inflated beyond the 21 million. It provides assurances that the fiat banking world and system simply cannot provide us. Historically, anytime somebody had control over the printing press, guess what? They wanted to debase it. Whoever can print money will. So to put it this way, Bitcoin is rules without rulers. So you, you just mentioned there the, the issue of how uh, Bitcoin provides a certain level of security because we know there's you know, scarcity and all that sort of thing with it. Uh, an issue I know that pops up uh, particularly around the discussion of Bitcoin is government regulation. I mean, you know, is, is it possible that the government could just outright ban Bitcoin or, or put limits on it to the point where it would basically make it almost irrelevant or that we wouldn't be able to use it anyway? Is, is that a threat? So the short answer is governments have tried. China has been trying to ban Bitcoin for years and years and years, and the, the industry still kept going. Pakistan and, uh, for example, Nigeria and other countries like India have tried to stop and cut off Bitcoin companies or their access to the banking system. And guess what happened? We saw a spike in the peer-to-peer -peer trade volume. So people were going around and trading cash for Bitcoin. They, they found ways around. And so... The other way to think about this, and I think listeners who are familiar with the idea of competitive federalism, you might also appreciate the idea of jurisdictional competition. So if one country is going really hard and trying to clamp it down, some other country might actually have an incentive to use Bitcoin. And so examples even there might be something like Iran, for example, who are sanctioned by the US government and by countries around the world as part of that US system they are able to use Bitcoin to still transact and trade and buy things. And so that's one example where just because some governments are cracking down in some ways, others are supporting it or at least tolerating it, let's say. And so I think this is also a broader pressure that people can't ignore because what happens in, a, in some sense is that people are going towards the hardest money. They're looking for the best money. Right. So money, we should think of it as the most saleable good. And so we can think of it like which 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 of my options has the best possible characteristics. So we can think of it like, hey, Bitcoin has the most scarcity. It has the most ability to be spent without anybody stopping me. I can verify the full supply when I run a Bitcoin node and I run my Bitcoin software. So it gives us these possibilities and characteristics that are superior to other forms of money. So I anticipate as Bitcoin has done, it's going to just keep out competing other forms of money. And it's the thing with money is you want to be holding the best one. Why? Because for the more amount of US dollars I hold, that's less Australian dollars I can hold. So there's a that like I really feel that opportunity cost when I'm holding one or another. Right. To give you another example, it would be like with social media, it doesn't matter as much, right? I can have a Twitter account and a Facebook account and it doesn't really cost me any more to have that. But the more dollars, Australian dollars I hold, that's less US dollars I can hold, 
or the more you know fiat money I hold, that's less Bitcoin I can hold. So there's a much stronger opportunity cost. And I think that drives out over time, longer term, towards the more scarce money, which is Bitcoin. I'd, uh, I'd like to come back to the point of regulation, but on that last point of scarcity, it uh, segues nicely into a couple of uh, viewer questions that are starting to come in. So firstly, uh, thank you to uh, Anthony and, and Chris for writing in. Thanks for tuning in. So basically both of them are asking similar questions around how is that 21 million limit determined and is like is there someone who is is controlling that i mean how did 21 million arise so 21 million was actually baked into the protocol from day one that was encoded into a certain aspect of the code known as a block subsidy i don't want to get into the technicals but essentially the network and it's a decentralized network anybody listening today can download a bitcoin core node uh, software and run that on their computer or on a device like a specialized device to run their bitcoin node that bitcoin node you can think of it like uh it checks the rules of the network and it rejects transactions that try to break the rules so that bitcoin node is sort of running code that basically checks the rules and makes sure that any new transactions or any uh, new blocks that are formed on Bitcoin's blockchain meet the rules. And so you can think of it like a fake like a fake Bitcoin detector, if you will. So if there's some invalid transaction, it just won't see that. And so in, and I know this is sort of nebulous, hard to explain, but it's like all the users of Bitcoin collectively determine what the rules are. And if you wanted to try to change the network, you would have to be able to get a super majority of those users to agree to your change. And so the, in practice, it'd be impossible to actually change that 21 million limit because you would be basically expecting the current holders of Bitcoin to dilute their own supply for no gain whatsoever. And so, and to be clear, that number, it's actually a little bit less than 21 million, but we just say 21 million because it's roughly that number. But essentially, we're not, that 21 million number is not changing. It's just, it's just not happening. So is it, is it almost like a self regulatory mechanism like you said like so if i hold bitcoin or i'm mining bitcoin i just can't all of a sudden decide to hit more than that 21 million limit like you said you have to get every single person who is involved in bitcoin to agree to that and you're talking about as you said before you outlined the the numbers you're talking about tens of millions of people right and so the number is in some sense governed by the nodes running on the network which as i I mentioned anyone can run a bitcoin node it's easy to do and that effectively when you use your own bitcoin node to receive bitcoins you are checking all the rules you're checking that nobody made bitcoins when they should not have and that your bitcoins are valid if you will and so it's 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 a network that operates on this idea of decentralized validation. So this network, it has to stay in consensus in terms of what is the correct state of the ledger, as in what were all the transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. So I don't want to get too into the technical details of it, but the short of, short version of it is essentially that all the users of Bitcoin are enforcing the rules of Bitcoin when they transact and when they run that software, the Bitcoin node. And other users, and in fairness, there are other users who are not running a Bitcoin node because maybe they're not at that level yet or they don't have the capability, but they are running some kind of wallet that is calling out to somebody else's node, feeding them that information. And that may be a Bitcoin exchange, it may be a Bitcoin wallet, but the long and the short of it is there's 
something on the order of 100,000 Bitcoin nodes out there. And those nodes are who collectively determine what Bitcoin is and what the rules are. And it's in, in that way that we enforce that limit of 21 million. I think the uh, the issue of the 21 million has certainly uh, piqued the curiosity of our of our viewers. We have another very good question from Greg, and thank you for watching and writing in. He wants to know when will this 21 million be reached, and possibly more importantly and interestingly, what happens next? So, as we speak today, something like 18.7 or 18.8 million of the 21 million coins have been issued or mined into existence as of today in, uh, what is it, July, 2021. We will hit that 90% number later this year. We'll hit the 99% number around 2035. And then the final piece of, of Satoshis or fractions of a Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin divides into hundred million. That final amount will come around the year 2140. So we'll be dead by then. <laughs> but <laughs> in terms of the question of what happens next, Basically, the network will continue operating and people will tr transact using transaction fees. I mean, there already are transaction fees to use the Bitcoin network, but the network will transition over to using tr transaction fees as the compensation for miners. So right now, it's kind of like there's this thing called the block subsidy, which is the new coins getting issued or mined into existence. And over time, that ratio of block subsidy amount versus the fees is going to, over time, that fee amount will rise. That's essentially the way that the system is going to sustain itself into the future, even in the year 2200, let's say. Well, yeah, you said we'll be uh, dead by 2140, so we won't have to worry about it, as you said, but we're certainly <laughs> not going to have to worry about it by 2200. But uh, perhaps we can leave a nice Bitcoin legacy for our great, 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 great grandchildren i think that would be that would be good i think you are you you mentioned a bitcoin mining there a few times and in my introduction i talked about how elon musk has been one of the people who've brought up environmental concerns we actually have a, a viewer question about that from chris who wants to know why does bitcoin use so much energy and is it possible that you know that'll be the uh, the downfall of bitcoin its energy consumption so the short answer is Bitcoin needs energy because that energy is what allows the decentralized consensus to work. So there's a system called proof of work in Bitcoin. And so this proof of work system relies on people performing a lot of what's called a SHA-256 hashing algorithm or double SHA-256. So they get specialized machinery. And the, the long and the short of that part of it is that the network relies on people being able to understand when somebody else has done a lot of work. And the only way to do that in this decentralized way is to sort of show that they had to, it was costly. It was like a costly signal that they had to expend this energy to get this many credits and have this much of a chance to win the next block. Because when you win the next block, you get the block subsidy and also the transaction fees associated for that. So that's, a, that's called the block reward. And so the, to the question around the amount of energy usage. So right now today, it's, it is in, you could sort of superficially compare it to maybe some smaller countries, but I think that's missing the point. The point really is that we have to understand why Bitcoin is worth it. How much would it be worth if we had a money that was not controlled by any government, 
by any bank, by any corporation, and it was an open source decentralized money that anybody could join this network, that money would be extremely valuable because it would facilitate all kinds of commerce and saving. And so I view it like we have to compare the Bitcoin standard, living under a Bitcoin standard, a hard money standard chosen by the market, as opposed to living under a fiat standard, the government money standard, where under a fiat money, governments can become a lot larger. And so this is where I think for people who are libertarians, classical liberals, people who would like to have smaller government, I think this Bitcoin is extremely important for your vision, your goals. Why? Because governments are able to fund themselves primarily through cheap debt. That is why governments are so large. So my view with Bitcoin is that it transitions society to more of an equity-based society as opposed to high debt levels. So that ratio, equity debt, will change. I think we'll see a society with a lot more equity and there'll be a lot less debt. There'll be some, but there won't be anywhere near as much. Now, what does that do? It makes it a lot harder for governments to engage in debt financing using bonds. What does that do? Well, it means politicians will now have to explicitly tax you and me and everyone else, as opposed to being able to push off the cost to future generations as they are today with bonds and with government debt being so cheap. So the net result of that means governments will have to be a lot smaller. They will be a lot less powerful. So for people out there who are libertarians, classical liberals, you want a smaller government, small government conservatives, Bitcoin serves your goals very much so. It will have very much classical liberal outcomes. That's how I would put it. So for those other libertarian classical liberal small government persuasion, they might, you know, just take what you said about various environmental concerns and make the trade-off because it it could it, it will reach their sort of longer term goals. I mean that's that position, classical liberal libertarian, is is not held by everyone. And I know a, a big part of of what you do, Stefan, is you actually educate people about about Bitcoin and that sort of thing. So I mean how how do you explain to someone who might think, well, you know, the the fiat system's fine. I can keep my Australian dollars, US dollars in a bank account. I can get it out whenever I want. Why are you talking about basically revolutionizing the the uh, currency system if what what is currently working is fine? How do you sort of go about explaining to people who aren't already probably predisposed to the libertarian classical liberal worldview? Of course, yeah, no, I understand that point. So let's put it this way: I think if there was one thing you took away from this, I think you won't really understand Bitcoin until you understand the problems with the fiat money system. Now that said, you don't have to be a libertarian or a classical liberal to see value in Bitcoin. And in fact, some developers and influential people within Bitcoin are not libertarians. Even though Bitcoin has a lot of libertarians in that audience, I would say there actually are a fair amount of people who, some of them are even progressives and some of them are just conservatives. Why? Because other people can find different ways to be attracted to Bitcoin. As an example, my friend Alex Gladstein over at HRF, Human Rights Foundation, is big on Bitcoin. He loves Bitcoin because he thinks it helps human rights around the world. There are protesters around the world who are protesting against tyranny, against authoritarian governments, say, uh, in places like Belarus or Nigeria. There have been protests and protest movements who have used Bitcoin to accept funding where the normal fiat system would have blocked them. So coming back to my point about 
you're not going to see the point of Bitcoin until you understand some of the issues with the fiat money system. There's probably two main ones there for individuals where you might really feel that impact. One is the savings aspect. You can't save with fiat money nowadays because the values is going down over time. But if you save in Bitcoin long-term, that is, of course, it's volatile in the short term, but long-term it's, it's, on, it's on an uptrend. So if you were saving into Bitcoin, you were getting 60, 70% per year on average, CAGR, compound annualized growth rate. And then the other part is the permission aspect. So Bitcoin is a system where we say it's permissionless. So anybody can sign up and create a wallet and receive Bitcoin and spend it cheaply if they're using the Lightning Network. So I think those are probably the two main aspects that can appeal to people. And you don't necessarily have to be a libertarian to see value in those things because there are a lot of crazy things going on in our world. Governments have become large authoritarian overbearing in the, especially in the last year or two and so there's value to being able to actually control your own money in a way that is outside the specific control of one government or one bank or one corporation and so i think for people who value that financial self-sovereignty uh, and financial empowerment bitcoin can serve a role for you do you think that what's happened over the last you know, year, 18 months in terms of the pandemic response and lockdown and all that sort of thing, do you think that you possibly see a, a spike in people who are interested in Bitcoin who might possibly not have considered it before, but, you know, they're looking around, you know, like you said, seeing debt levels and inflation and that sort of thing and, and might be a bit more interested in it? Absolutely. So, Probably the most famous example is Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy. He has mentioned that the, all of this stuff going on has, was rather, was what spurred his additional curiosity and then research and then going down that pathway of learning about Bitcoin. So we call that orange pill, taking the orange pill. And so I think whether or not we had this whole pandemic, Eventually, the world would have gone to Bitcoin, but I think it acted as a big accelerant. It just it it forced it into the conversation for a lot of people. Why? Because governments took out a lot of debt. There was a lot of inflation. There were people sitting at home with no ability to work, so they were bored and researching things. So if, whether for that reason, whether they were bored or whether it made certain other problems in the fiat system more acute, right? It dialed up. The level of inflation it dialed up the the level of financial control and because of that that caused more people to then say oh actually yeah i do want to learn a bit about bitcoin because i can see value in that so i think absolutely yes it has spurred that bitcoin investment and orange pill process we have another audience question that I think is important for you to address, Stefan, and that is around the price volatility of, of Bitcoin. I mean, if, it, if you've got these you know, price fluctuations going up and down, how can it be a store of value much less uh, used as a means of exchange? Yeah, good question. And so the short answer is we have to think of the long term. So basically, anyone who has been holding Bitcoin for four years or longer was never in a loss. They were always up dramatically. But it has had, as you and the listeners would know, big drop, big drops historically. So we've had big drops 
uh, even before my time in like 2011 and 2012, there was a big run up and a crash in 2013 or two rather. That was 2017. And now even now we've seen the 60K down to 30K. And I, I still think there's probably more left in this, in this run to go before we sort of call it for this cycle and then come back again in a few years. But I think you have to take a long view on this. And so if you look at the actual numbers, if you look at say CAGA, compound annual growth rate, uh, you would have gotten something like 60 or seven, sorry, 70 or 80% in that range if you were just buying every day or every week. Uh, if you did a one-shot buy, even you can get higher numbers than that. You might've been getting 200% per year. And so if you, now for comparison's sake, if you had been in the S&P 500, you would have been getting maybe 14, 15%. So we're talking about four or five times what you would have gotten if you were just in the S&P. So we can think of it like the volatility is the price you pay for this incredible return. And also it's really about long-term. So what I would say is for people who want to think about saving into Bitcoin, think of it as I'm buying these Bitcoins and I'm planning to not sell them for a minimum of four years, but realistically you want to be holding for even 10 years or longer. And then that's where the big gains come for people who have correctly, you know, for example, they go to, say swanbitcoin.com and they start stacking uh, what we say stacking sats or buying pieces of Bitcoin regularly, then that has historically been a very good strategy. But obviously you have to get some awareness and knowledge about Bitcoin so that you're not worried. Uh, so you don't get shaken out in the volatility that happens and it has happened, right? So there have been 80% drops in Bitcoin. So as long as you are thinking about the long-term, thinking about the fundamentals, uh, then that's essentially the approach that uh, many Bitcoin people have taken quite successfully. Is that volatility also just going to naturally decrease over time? I think so. So we have to remember, so as we speak today, Bitcoin's market is, call it 600 billion. It's, you know, it's, it's tiny compared to global markets still. So I think, the, the common analogy is this idea of, let's say you've just got a bucket of water and you drop a pedal, pebble, yeah, it'll, it'll cause a ripple. But if you go to the ocean and you throw a, a stone in there, well, it's barely anything because it's, it's just so much bigger as a percentage. So I think that's also, a, that's also the likely pathway with Bitcoin is that once it gets a lot bigger and a lot more adopted, then yeah, it would be less volatile. But I am anticipating a lot more volatility until we get there because we're seeing the world monetize. We're seeing the world monetize a new asset. And this is nobody in living memory has seen that happen in real time before our eyes. Because when it happened with gold, it was over thousands of years. So in the internet age, it's this exponential technology of the internet meeting exponential technology of Bitcoin being you know, this incredible asymmetric bet. And so another important point to understand with volatility is that people can just size their position. Nobody's saying you have to go all in Bitcoin. You could do 1%, 2% or 5% of Bitcoin. And historically, if looking at the numbers, that would have dramatically improved your portfolio. So people talk about this in the more financial and investment aspects of Bitcoin. People even taking a small allocation have dramatically improved their return with only a, you know, not a great, uh, without basically taking a huge amount more risk because they sized their position accordingly. 
there's a there's certainly an awful lot more we could get into in regards to a uh, Bitcoin, and there's a lot of other good questions in the uh, chat box. But unfortunately, we have run out of time for today. If you want to learn more about Bitcoin, I recommend the Stefan Levera podcast, whose host has graciously given us his time today. So thank you for everyone watching. Thank you for your questions. And uh, Stefan, thank you very much for taking the time out to uh, explain to the CIS audience all about Bitcoin. Thanks very much, Monica. A pleasure to chat. And listeners, you can find me online on Twitter at Stefan Levera. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you everyone for watching. I'm Monica Walkie, a policy analyst at the Center for Independent Studies. Until next time, thank you.